Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Forensic Anthropology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Kennyhurst. It's good to be back after an extended hiatus, and I hope you're doing well. Today, I am joined by longtime colleague and friend, Dr. Alexandra Clales. Hi, I'm Dr. Alexandra Clales. I am a forensic anthropologist. I teach at Washburn University, and I'm director of the Washburn University Forensic Anthropology Recovery Unit. My research primarily focuses on biological profile estimation methods, specifically sex estimation. To go over her review article, The Current State of Sex Estimation in Forensic Anthropology. Alex and I do a deep dive into an aspect of the biological profile that gets little attention and, importantly, how we should all be embracing uncertainty. So let's jump right in. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time in between meetings. I'm really excited to be able to have this chat because I think this is the type of thing that we need to start doing more in anthropology is take a critical look at where we stand with all we do. You make a really good case in this paper that there are better ways to be spending our energies moving forward. But could you please give us a brief overview of the paper and just three main takeaways from it? So the main goal of the paper was just to kind of present a summary of where we are with sex estimation, current practices, preferences for estimating sex, and then some of the sort of contentious issues or problematic areas where we need future research. And then it kind of closes with recommendations for developing best practices for sex estimation. So the three main takeaways I think from this paper are that there is a huge range of variation in the way that sex estimation is approached for the biological profile. And that includes the methods that people are using, the sequence of those analyses, how they combine the results into a single estimate, and then how they report the results. So just lots of variation. The second main takeaway is that we currently have minimum standards for sex estimation, but we still don't have best practice guidelines. So we need to be sort of cognizant of the advantages and disadvantages and kind of limitations of the methods that are currently available for sex estimation. We have to keep in mind some of these contentious issues and problematic areas and confounding factors. And then just kind of to be aware of when we should or shouldn't render an opinion on sex estimation based on some of those limitations. And then I think the third main takeaway is that a lot of people think sex estimation is kind of the easiest parameter to estimate because it's limited to two options. And our methods seemingly have high accuracy rates, especially when we look at or compare them to DNA analyses. So there's this idea that we're kind of good to go and the focus has shifted to validity and reliability studies, but there is still a ton of work to be done. And the discussion section of this paper kind of includes some steps necessary to create best practice documents for sex estimation. Oh, that was a great encapsulation. And yeah, we'll get to some of those more salient points as we move through this too. But I would tend to agree that people think this is just kind of the easiest part because probably we're limited to two options. And like you said, there are very high rates, but it does seem that newer novel approaches are are lacking in that people have just kind of given up on this, like, oh, this is solved for better or worse. So let's just move on to the next thing. But moving on to the next question, was there anything that you thought was surprising about the practices and preferences? survey that was distributed? 
Yes, I was surprised by how many people preferred to use qualitative data or morphological methods versus metric methods and how many people only used one or the other. I was also really surprised and kind of shocked by how many people reported using their own data sets or their own reference samples or unpublished methods, especially within a forensic context, because that's you know problematic. And then I was still surprised by how many people preferred the use of the skull over the pelvis or the long bones, which we know are have been repeatedly shown to be more sexually dimorphic. Yeah, I was kind of surprised too about the one from the unpublished data using kind of just data set that you that practitioners had at hand to be able to answer these questions. And I'd be interested in what what it is that that data are encapsulating or what it is that is being compared. And if it is so useful, why hasn't it been published? Yeah, I imagine it could be related to populations that are not represented in some of the available methods, but it's hard to tease that apart based on the survey data that was collected. Sure, that makes sense. It's interesting because most of other areas of the biological profile are very heavy on a quantitative kind of focus. And this being kind of the lone holdout for morphologically based approaches is interesting. Not that I disagree with them. I'm, I use those a ton in my own work. And obviously you have a method that is half and half, right? So it's you're scoring morphological things in a quantitative framework. That's part of the reason why I wanted to publish an edited volume on it, because there was already edited volumes on age and population affinity or biological affinity. And sex estimation always kind of gets left out. Again, I think because people think it's easy and we know what we're doing and, you know, it's not broken, so why fix it? Yeah, it's interesting too because uh, we we notice and we talk about how secular trends affect estimates of age and stature and even ancestry, but not sex so much, even though we know it exists. Right. So if we know it exists and we're still relying on old methods based off of old data, then we're bound to start making errors moving forward. Yeah, and there's just been a lack of interest, I think, in actually exploring that. So what is your practice and preference when it comes to sex estimation? If I have a nearly complete skeleton available, I will score the morphological cranial and pelvic traits, the pubis traits included in my MorphoPass program. And I always start with the skull first, again, just to try to avoid some of the biases with seeing the pelvis and kind of, you know, knowing that it's the most sexually dimorphic. So I start with the skull first and then we'll score the pelvic traits. Then I'll collect all of the osteometric data. Once the data collection is complete, I'll analyze the data using MorphoPass GUI or the Fortis program. And sometimes the cases are pretty clear cut where there's not a huge discrepancy between the morphological and metric methods or the skull and the pelvis are kind of aligning. And then in other cases where they don't necessarily align or agree with one another, I'll explore the data more using some of the original equations or publications using the shape transformation and four disc or employing other methods like your human ID or 3D ID. If the skeleton's incomplete or really highly fragmented or taponomically modified, I get a lot of fire cases. I have to guess kind of turn to methods that are more appropriate for the bones that are available and the condition that they're in. And in some cases, it might just be 
impossible to even give an opinion on sex estimation, depending on what's available. The burn cases I have are usually really, really, really fragmented. And so there have been cases where I just cannot include some of the biological profile parameters just because they're, I can't analyze them with the methods that are available. So it looks like you start needing to use teeth more, huh? Yeah, I've been getting into the habit of collecting all of the data with the teeth as well. I think the teeth are really underutilized for the biological profile and they're very informative just because they are controlled so much more by genetic factors than environmental factors. Yeah, the canalization of their development certainly helps in that regard too. And just they're so robust and though they might survive a fire better than your ribs or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much that was done in the past on teeth. The one that comes to mind as being useful or was by Ditch and Rose about canine measurements. It's canine and another tooth. But yeah, oh, using just like the canine, they got about like 95% correct classification. But problems with those older studies is that some of them are based off of like reference populations where sex was estimated via other means and used Mm -hmm. as their assigned sex. So there's issues with that for sure. I guess um, what I'm trying to get at is that each case is very specific or it depends what you can do given what you have. And in these instances in which we're not always going to get the optimal type of material to do the best type of analyses, we have to think of these alternative ways in which we can make the most out of that situation. Yeah, and when to just say that we can't do it also. I think knowing when you can't give an opinion based on what's available and the methods that are available. I think that ties into this idea of standardization and best practices is that we're always going to need some level of flexibility because every case is unique in what's available, the condition of those remains, the appropriateness of different methods for that specific case. 100% agree. I I love that too, knowing when we shouldn't say something or when it is a bad idea to to render an opinion and having something that backs you up in that regard with the kind of like the best practices or having standards for it kind of alleviates that need to feel like you have to say something because now you know here like this is the time in which I shouldn't make an opinion about this because there's just too much unknown. Yeah, and there's times in case reports where I haven't been able to render an estimate for some of the biological profile parameters and will suggest that they pursue other methods for aiding in a sort of presumptive identification, for example, using DNA analysis or isotopic analysis, because I think sometimes some of the investigators that we're working with maybe aren't sure of all the methods that are sort of available or ones that are outside the realm of forensic pathology or forensic anthropology. I love that idea is that if you run into a place in which you know that given your tool set, you can't give them the answers, but to offer different paths forward. But yeah, I think that's that's a totally appropriate way to do it. And I think that's something that should be included in kind of our training is being able to identify potential avenues forward for them that maybe we could help facilitate, but don't necessarily have to do. So you're still being helpful in that regard. You're still fulfilling your function, but yeah, you don't have to say something that you can't back up, I guess. Right. You want to kind of know your limitations, what you are and are not capable of, and what's sort of outside your scope of expertise. But I think this ties back into sort of being involved with our stakeholders and being part of this multidisciplinary team with the ultimate goal of identification and figuring out what happened to the person. And so we're part of that team 
And so any assistance that you can provide or directions that you can point them in that are sort of outside your scope, I think is helpful, especially when individuals might not necessarily be familiar with the entire scope of forensic sciences or what is available. So we agree that there needs to be some sort of standard procedure or best practice put in place, and you make a very convincing argument for that, but words matter and there are differences between these words. So could you describe what the difference between standards, standard operating procedures, procedures, and best practices is? Yes, it's one of my biggest pet peeves is the the way that people use so many of these terms interchangeably that when I wrote the introduction to the sex estimation book that came out, I uh, recently, that whole first section was just on terminology. And so I think it's admittedly confusing for people, the difference between standards, procedures, standard operating procedures, guidelines, and best practices, because they are used so interchangeably in sort of the everyday or colloquial sense, but they have very distinct meanings and definitions, especially when we're talking about our methods that we're employing and how we employ them. The International Standards Organization, the ISO, defines a standard as a document that's established by a consensus body. In our case, it's the ASB, and it provides sort of common rules or guidelines or characteristics of a specific activity and the results in order to achieve sort of this minimum level within a specific context. And so minimum standards exist for some of our biological profile parameters and standard 90, which came out in 2019, is the standard for sex estimation in forensic anthropology. So it dictates kind of what's minimally required and refers to sort of low level agreed upon way of accomplishing something. And it's sort of that foundation for these higher order procedures, guidelines, and best practices, which don't yet exist in our field. So we have a minimum standard for sex estimation. Guidelines are recommendations or suggestions on how to perform or act in a particular instance. And it kind of streamlines processes. And because they're guides, they're kind of open to interpretation and flexible. Procedures refer to sort of detailed step-by-step instructions on how to accomplish something. And they're often integrated into manuals that are specific to um, individual laboratories or individual practitioners known as standard operating procedures. And the goal is to sort of establish uniformity for the performance of a specific task or function. So it answers questions of like, who's doing what? How do they do it? When do you do what? And then best practices are an approach to a task that is generally accepted as surpassing all others. So that's why it has the name best in it. It produces results that are superior to those achieved by other means. And that's dictated by some objectively measured standard and agreed upon goal. So for best practice guidelines to have value, they have to be sort of adaptable to a broad range of organizations or individuals. And I think that's what's really, really important when we eventually develop best practices for sex estimation or just in general in forensic anthropology because we are working in so many different contexts, some in academia, some in government jobs, some for NGOs or medical examiner's offices or contractual individual practitioners. And so there's always going to be a need for some degree of flexibility and best practices allows for that. That is a perfect summation of those. And I think you're 100% right because there are so many different use cases, there are so many different kind of types of forensic anthropologists, even though that we're small, the specialties can range. And if you're doing like the Argentinian forensic team, if you're doing that type of kind of huge scale work, working with giant 
mass graves, then you need to have a standard set of operating instructions because there's just too much and you're always going to be facing the same kind of legal questions. So you want to make sure that everything is done in a consistent way across the board. One, because it makes it faster, it makes it uniform, and there are no real surprises to the process. There's nothing that you, if you did something, if you did one use case differently at one time, then you have to spend time explaining why you did it this way as opposed to the way that you didn't do the other hundred or whatever. So having some degree of flexibility is kind of necessary just because the ways in which we function vary so drastically from practitioner to practitioner. But do you think that maybe the ABFA should have some sort of stake in developing these best practices? That's a good question. I think a lot of members of the ABFA are involved in the developing of these standards. Do I think it should be just restricted to ABFA members? Not totally sure about that. I think maybe not. But I do think a lot of people that are involved with the ABFA are involved in these various committees developing um, at least the minimum standards, which we need first to eventually develop procedures, SOPs, and best practices. Could you compare and contrast the recommendations from Swiganth and OSAC? Okay, so they're not necessarily recommendations per se. The Swiganth document is actually a list that includes eight best practices within it. So when we go back to sort of our terminology, those are uh, number five list best practices. While the OSAC standard 90 on sex estimation is a standard, so it's the minimum standard for estimating sex. So they both include a description of the approaches, so morphological metric methods and sort of unacceptable practices. But standard 90 also includes considerations, confounding factors, information on reporting results. And then it also includes a bibliography with reference publications, which the Swiganth document doesn't include. So we have the minimum standard with the standard 90, but we still don't have agreed upon sort of guidelines. The best practices included in Swiganth were not sort of absorbed into the OSAC document and weren't sort of put forth as best practice recommendations in standard 90. Yeah, one of the things that struck me as odd was that in the OSAC general procedure requirement, only the methods with the greatest accuracy should be given consideration while ignoring kind of the aspects of bias in, in that accuracy. And I just thought that seemed a little bit vague to not include that. It's not just a model with the best accuracy, right? If you have a model where males are a hundred percent correct and females are 80% correct, or you have another model where both are 90%, why wouldn't you use the more balanced model as opposed to the one with the greater accuracy? I think the intent or spirit of that document, who those who participated in writing it, probably would agree with that statement, that that should be considered as well. But that's one of the biggest issues, in my opinion, with minimum standards, is that they are bare minimum requirements for accomplishing a task, and they don't include those guidelines or best practices or procedures. So it leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And one of the problems that we currently have with all of the biological profile parameters is that we don't have an agreed upon way in our fields of addressing bias, what are acceptable reliability and validity cutoffs for specific methods. So until we can define acceptable levels of validity and reliability with which to judge particular methods and their applicability to casework, 
it's really difficult to put forth recommendations for what we should or shouldn't be doing. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense too. But who or when or how do we agree on that? Well, um, the very last part of my article, which probably will rub some people the wrong way and may not be the most popular opinion, includes step-by-step guidelines for how to establish best practices that are sort of outside of our field. So continuing with the importance of words, could you explain the difference between determination, estimation, and assessment? and explain why those distinctions might matter? Okay. Again, another big pet peeve of mine. Sex assessment has typically been reserved for kind of the historic approach to estimating the biological profile where you're looking at morphological traits and don't include sort of estimates of error or any classification rates or probabilities. Statistical methods aren't employed. So for example, just kind of picking up a skull, looking at a handful of traits or the gestalt, overall size, robusticity, And then estimating the decedent as one sex or the other based on your experience and training. And we know today that this is, you know, very invalid and unreliable and sort of lacks the scientific rigor required of us as a discipline. Sex determination, on the other hand, or just the word determination implies a level of confidence approaching close to 100% accuracy. And in our case, would assume that sex can be treated as a known criterion. So when you hear the word determination, you even sort of the colloquial definition is knowing something exactly. So the only method that we have to determine biological or chromosomal sex is with near 100% accuracy, and that's not even 100%, is DNA analysis, and it has its own caveats and limitations like false negatives. And then sex estimation has historically been restricted to the use of metric approaches that are usually multivariate, have an estimate of the error rate, and expected classification probabilities. However, I would argue that Many of the morphological methods that are currently available also include these parameters. And so the term sex estimation should be expanded to include any estimation of sex with associated classification accuracies and error rates based on skeletal parameters. So that's what I use in the term sex estimation. I think when we're using that heading and title in our reports as well, it really drives home that this is an estimate that we are not saying for certain one sex or the other. And that goes for all the other biological profile parameters. Yeah, I agree. And for some people, it might just be like, well, it's just a word and the word doesn't really matter. But I think you're 100% right, is that these words convey ideas to people. And depending on who our stakeholder is, they might have a much different idea about what something like determination versus estimation means. And it might prime them in one way, like, oh, well, this is just the way it is then for a determination. It's been determined that this was male or whatever, as opposed to estimated. And I think that does prime people and bias us in ways that we really can't measure. And I think estimation is probably the the best for all of them, because that's what we're doing, particularly with all the methods in which we use or mix or choose not to use or whatever. There are so many individual choices that go into it that having a level of confidence to say uh, determined just seems unreachable for us and the way that we have to do our jobs, I guess. I think when we're using these terms and any terminology, when we're talking about forensic anthropology, we have to think about who our stakeholders are 
and how they might interpret those words. So law enforcement, medical examiners, coroners, the jurors, judges. So words do have meaning. And even in the standard, the ANC ASB standard 90, it says the term estimation is more generic and largely interchangeable with determination and assessment in the relevant literature. The term estimation often implies the development of error probabilities and or expected classification rate. And I would argue that we should not be using determination or assessment any longer to describe what we're doing. Yeah, I agree. And it might seem like a small step, but it's an important small step. Because that just to agree on the language we use when we're describing our surety of a process is important. And that seems like something that we might be able to all agree on if we just read the definitions and agreed on this is what we're actually doing, as opposed to this is a word I've been trained to use or I've always used or whatever. When we could all agree, this is the meaning. This is actually what we're doing. So why don't we just say what we're doing? But I don't think it's a fun topic to talk about either. And I certainly am like guilty of using these terms interchangeably. And another one that drives me crazy is using non-metric when you're talking about morphology and sort of all of that stuff. So I wanted to dedicate like a big chunk of the introduction of the book to that. Nice. Call out Joe Hefner. I called out myself too. (laughs) (laughs) I called out us, our publications, my publications, you know, so I'm not saying that it's perfect, but we do need to start agreeing upon some of this terminology moving forward because we can't standardize without it. Right. And it's important that we do. So we have a consistent product to give to people, just all of us, and that we can all feel individually confident in our analyses. Because if there is no kind of standard, if there is no universal agreement on the way in which we should be doing these things, then why are we doing them any which way, right? Like there there is probably better and worse ways to analyze a skeleton. And we should be all trying to make ourselves move towards what's the best way to do it together. And not one person is going to have all of those ideas, nor should they be expected to. It's got to be everyone. But like you were saying earlier, how do you get buy-in on people to care about doing this? Because it isn't fun to talk about. It's kind of boring, right? Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) That's fair. I mean, I think I promote it as much as possible through my teaching. You know, when Enter 90 came out for public comment, that was one of my comments. It said sex assessment, and I suggested that it should be changed to estimation, and it eventually was, and I'm sure others probably commented on that as well. So I think, you know, buy-in and doing at least what you can. Yeah. Whatever small changes you can make in your day-to-day practice, if that means in your reports or in the way you interact with students and teach it, those are big things that matter down the line. And we're at a point now where everyone's kind of preferences as a practicing anthropologist are kind of set. I don't think those are the people you're going to change anytime soon. Uh, I don't feel like I'm set. I feel like a sponge. I love looking at like different agencies' forms and uh, the wording that they use for certain aspects of forms. Like I am constantly, I think, trying to improve and make things more efficient. And um, the terminology stuff is really interesting to me. Um, The history of words and terms. I go down a lot of rabbit holes. (laughs) That's awesome, though. And I think that that speaks to your your growth mentality. You've always been a growth seeker and that's why you've always been a high performer and producer of research and all kinds of research is because that is something that you enjoy doing. I I enjoy it too. I think my favorite thing in life is to be proven wrong and to accept that I was wrong and learn from that and how can I be better because of it. 
I think people don't want to say or admit that they don't know something or they're unsure of something. And I think there's a level of humility with that when saying, hey, like we can't give an estimate of sex or I'm not sure I need to look at the literature or let me consult with somebody else that has more experience in this. Yeah, because then we'd all be exposed as imposters that we are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's real. It's real. But I, I do wonder about that, particularly in our field, because a lot of it is trying to justify why we're necessary right to the outside world. Why do you think that sex and gender are still used interchangeably? It could be that there's a lack of understanding on the difference between the two terms and the biological versus cultural basis of them. And it also could partially be, I think, some of the sort of negative connotations or the association of the term sex with like intercourse or being a dirty word. So gender might be the more PC version of it, although they mean very different things. So when we're talking about biological sex, it's not necessarily just chromosomal, right? We could talk about soft tissue, or we could talk about secondary sex characteristics, or we could talk about the assigned biological sex at birth. And that's, you know, based on soft tissue, not chromosomes. So even, you know, biological sex is not binary and not as simple as just the the chromosomes that a person has. Heather Garvin and Evan Garofalo wrote a really fantastic chapter on the on biological sex and gender in my sex estimation book. It's hands down my favorite chapter of the entire book. Do you think forensic anthropologists could or should estimate gender? The documents that we have available in the minimum standards say that we cannot estimate gender from skeletal form, which I agree with. But there's been some debate recently, and I kind of I'm undecided about this, and I think it would be a really good conversation to have about whether or not we should be including information if gender or some of the contextual information we have on uh, gender. So, for example, clothing doesn't match the sex that we are estimating. Should we be including that information in our reports? And how can we resolve missing person cases involving decedents that are transgender? Right, because there could be a bunch of reasons we might find someone that looks based on skeletal form male, all the analyses are coming out male, but we might find contextual information indicative of a different gender. Should we be including that information in our reports and presenting all of the information available so as not to hinder or limit the investigation of the positive identification? What are the issues with estimating sex in subadults? Well, the first issue is whether or not we should even be doing it. There's no agreed upon consensus on what age it becomes acceptable at. Swigan says it can't be done under 12 years of age, but other references suggest older or younger ages. And then the other big issue that we have, uh, besides whether or not we should even be doing it and at what age it's okay, is what's an acceptable validity level for a specific method. So at what point does a method become acceptable to even be used? When is that point? In my opinion, I think 75% because, you know, it's 50% better than chance. I don't think we're never going to, well, I shouldn't say we're never going to get, but I think it's going to be unrealistic to assume that we're going to get to the high level of accuracy and validity that we see with adults. Not if we start using some of those newer methods you're uh, pushing for. Yeah. And I think we can do it in younger. I would say never. I would say, I would caveat that and be like, given the methods at our disposal currently, we are unlikely to achieve that level of validity. And that is why we need to be looking 
and these alternative new or novel approaches because we are limited in our understanding because we are limited by the tools at our disposal and our tool kit is not adequately set up to deal with this problem in particular i would agree, argue yeah, i think there's too much emphasis on trying to focus on the skeletal regions that work for adults instead of thinking about it as an independent separate problem or hypothesis to test right and why shouldn't we i'm thinking about luis cabo right now talking about development and looking for a biological basis reason to be looking at the area you're looking at. And we can surmise that information if we just go back to our growth and development and look at the different trajectories of different features and then think about how can we leverage these different trajectories, which are pretty tightly genetically controlled over when they occur to use for sex estimation. But I think that then becomes a two-step problem because of the different trajectories of males and females as females being more precocious earlier than males, but then males having that much higher accelerated catch-up growth afterwards. So I think moving forward with subadult, it has to be an age and a sex problem together. It can't be teased out separately. And if you try to tease it out separately, I think you're just going to introduce a bunch of noise you can't account for, given what we know about the biological realities of these developmental like trajectories, you know? Right. And there's population variation and other confounding factors like environmental stressors and nutrition. And it's a very complex problem. It is. But I think all I think you can make the argument that everything that we look at is a con a complex confounding of multiple things that are happening right but we just agreed upon these well as an adults these have already been firmly established and now we can look at this region or whatever i don't know if that's the that's the appropriate way to approach a problem no it's not and there's a really fantastic uh book chapter that came out i think in 2018 with Naraki and Latham and Bartolink that I absolutely love that discusses some of those problems. Yep. And why we should all be using Ancova and no one else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the yeah, one. I, I, I love that point. I don't think anyone's going to pick up on that or do that or incorporate that in their analyses. At least I haven't seen it in really any methods-based paper that's come out. I don't think anybody has examined their variation from the get-go and then run their model. They just ran their model and discussed about the significant variables, if any existed. Right, and I'm totally guilty of that too because there's so much focus and emphasis on prediction and the end result that we need to step back, I think, and focus on describing the variation, explaining the variation, looking at confounding factors and variables, and hypothesis testing, and not focus so much on just classification and predictive value if we're trying to really understand why we're seeing these sexually dimorphic differences. Right. I, I can't agree more with that statement. I think that's the most important thing that our field needs is to be more considerate about the whys behind and not just uh, look for the what's at the end. What's my, how do I chase this highest total correct classification? Does that matter? Probably not. 
what's the what's the worth of a method that works well but you don't understand why it works well or you can't conceptualize or describe why it works well or why it doesn't work well or why it doesn't work in this case we just need to be i think like you said earlier we just need to be aware of what we don't know and embrace that and try to get better at understanding the particulars and starting with our own data sets is the way to do it because it is more than just prediction. It seems wild that you have a skeleton in which you may have hundreds of measurements and thousands of observations or whatever, and you're just looking for one answer. That just seems like a waste of time. Well, I don't know that we're necessarily looking for like one answer. Like we're testing, you know, the demographic information is, you know, testing one specific hypothesis. But I think because we are an applied discipline and we need or we're expected to produce um, an output as a presumptive ID that can aid with identification, that there's sometimes um, a disconnect between the theory and the methods behind these predictive methods. And, you know, as a good anthropologist, a good biological anthropologist, there always needs to be sort of that connection between the two. And we're not operating in a black box of, you know, putting stuff in and spitting out an answer. Yes, that's what goes into our reports, but the ability to critically evaluate our methods, interpret our results, need to be contextualized within theory and methods and human variation and sexual dimorphism across time and space and variation between populations and variation between variables. Yeah, and I think, like, instead of an endless amount of validation studies, start looking at different covariates or different reasons, right? Start exploring the same data sets under a different lens or a new lens and see what you learn from it as opposed to just try to replicate the results at uh, one one specific use of it. And I think like the gap between the two really needs to be bridged. I think a lot of the work we see with geometric morphometric analyses are describing that variation and those subtle nuances, but then in practicality purposes, there's really no way to translate that into producing a probability of sex classification. So I think in that case, we're kind of missing the predictive or sort of end part of it where we've got the explain, describe, compare component of it. And so I think it goes both ways, but historically the focus has been on predictive classification purposes. Yeah, I agree. And I think morphometrics will likely be a, a cool area to study if you're looking into sub-adult anything, just because it can pick out some of those more nuanced things. But actually putting that into practice is a little more difficult than something like uh, if you just had to look at different features and put them on some sort of scale, or if you had calipers and you just measure something. So in talking about kind of the list of things that are contentious in sex estimation, you have a section on data types. So what is so contentious about different types of data? Well, I think there's debate about whether we should be using qualitative or quantitative data and methods, uh, what order to collect them in, analyze them in, and which ones are more objective or appropriate. Uh, for example, I read a recent publication, I think it was from 2016 or 2017, on the biological profile that suggested that morphological traits should be used to get kind of an initial assessment, and then you confirm your assessment and provide an estimate of sex based on metric approaches. And then I reviewed a bunch of the cases that were presented in Garvin and Langley's uh, 2019 case study book, 
And in some of those chapters, only metric methods were used or only morphological methods were used or only certain parts of the body were used or the order that they were used in uh, vary depending on practitioner. I think we should be using all of the available information that we have and collecting all of the data that is available depending on the case that we have. So what are the arguments for and against working in the blind? So both the SWIGANT and standard 9D on sex estimation suggest that you should work in the blind because it eliminates biases, especially like confirmation biases. And then the argument against working in the blind and using informed analyses is that it's not always practical or possible. It also increases our efficacy. It saves resources like time, money, labor hours, and it expedites the process. I think our benefits to both blind analyses and informed analyses, but you can't always realistically work in the blind. And especially in my case where I am a single practitioner, I'm not working in a lab with multiple forensic anthropologists. It is hard to not be privy to some of that information beforehand, especially if I'm going to the scene and completing the recovery and then doing the laboratory analyses. I'm the primary point of contact or communication with law enforcement, the coroner medical death investigator. Yeah, it's not it's not always possible. And I would argue, too, that as soon as we look at a set of remains, we're already biased. We've already generated some idea in our head. And that's just what we do because we've looked at thousands and thousands of sets of remains and we were looking for differences and we have formed these opinions even if it's not at a conscious level we've we get an idea or a feeling the point i'm trying to make is that i don't think we're ever truly in the blind because we've been trained to look for these things so i would agree with them yeah it's difficult and i think there are pros and cons to both and that there's never going to be an ideal situation so kind of related to working in the blind or not in the event that sex is known, should we estimate the sex still? I mean, there's arguments for both sides. I'm clearly on one side of that. The individuals, I think, that would argue that, yes, we should estimate sex, even if it's known through like a positive ID or DNA or soft tissue confirms biological sex. They would argue that we're able to test our methods. We can confirm the positive identification and it has sort of teaching and pedagogical value for our students as sort of a learning process. I am on the other side of that and I would argue against it because it could delay the investigation um, by potentially requiring maceration if there's soft tissue, additional data collection, additional analyses. It can include associated costs, time, money, resources. And so, again, um, I work on a contractual basis. And so I am contracted by a specific agency and they are asking me a specific test. They either want a biological profile to aid in identification or analysis of trauma taphonomy or recovery. And so I think we need to stick to, you know, what is being asked of us so as not to delay the investigation further. And also, honestly, you know, I think it's a great idea to collect all of that data and have that data and then you can you know see how well the methods are using but realistically the caseload that I have is so high that I will do what they need from me and what they need from their investigation and what they are paying me as a contracted service to do so as not to delay their investigation and prolong the analysis of the case. 
What are the possible confounding effects of age on skeletal robusticity? The short answer, I think, is that we don't actually know. The relationship isn't really well understood for most of the morphological traits that we look at or the measurements that we use. And we really need to be focusing on hypothesis testing using variance equations to better understand the impact, if there even is any. What about secular change? How might this impact the applicability of the methods we use? Well, I think just as a human species, we are continuously adapting on a sort of microevolutionary scale. And we know that secular changes in skeletal form is occurring. So I think we need to be cognizant of the potential impact of these changes on the methods that are currently available. And just kind of like with any method that we're using for sort of any part of the biological profile, we need to consider the appropriateness of the method and any inherent limitations or confounding factors. And I think, again, it comes back to needing more research and sort of better understanding the impact of secular change on some of the traits or uh, measurements that we're using and just kind of being critically evaluating the methods that we're using and recognizing the sort of limitations. Yeah, and I feel like there might be this attitude that secular trends happen mainly in kind of the metric realm. But in your own research, you have shown the secular changes in the different, um, in the pubis scores that you had expanded from the Phoenix characteristics. Well, I think, you know, shape is part of form. It's not just size. So they're not operating sort of independent of one another. So if we're seeing size changes, we should probably see shape changes as well and form changes. And at least with a lot of the traits that we're looking at for sex estimation, they're related to muscle attachment sites and skeletal robusticity is impacted by environmental factors, individual life history, and those things change through time. And since these features don't just exist in a vacuum, they are impacted by these different things in different ways that we really don't understand a whole lot about yet. Like what is contributing what to this observed variation? Just that we know that these are the shape consequences that happen and that we can observe. So now we have to kind of work backwards as to why did these happen in this way? Or I think it just goes back again to understanding the variation between individuals, between populations, across time, across space. So those were kind of the big kind of contentious issues in sex estimation. But what are some of the confounding problems that need to be considered? This is... I think really complicated because we know that sexual dimorphism is impacted by extrinsic factors like nutrition and stress, but that also intrinsic factors like hormone levels. And then we also have to think about other potential confounding factors like socioeconomic status, secular change, pathological conditions, trauma, taphonomy, biomechanical demands on the skeleton. And so all of those confounding factors and their impact in relationship to sexual dimorphism need to be better understood in order for us to estimate or predict sex. I would agree. And to understand that some of these confounding factors like SES are are actual proxies for things that we can understand and estimate, right? So they are, if you have less access to proper nutrition or medical care what are the what what does that actually mean from a biological developmental standpoint and how does that impact our research so it's not that low ses is particularly the driver of that variation it's a proxy for the things that are causing the changes and 
those are the types of things we need to understand better so we have a more fully formed opinion of what it is we are seeing now. I think that's a perfect example of how we can never separate our culture from our biology. They're going to always be inherently linked and impacting one another. Yeah, it's a continuous feedback loop that just never ends. What are the potential opportunities for future research? I think all of the confounding factors we talked about, all of the contentious issues, better understanding the role of hormones and skeletal growth and development as it's related to sexual dimorphism, understanding the impact of gender affirming therapies on secondary sex characteristics, more data sharing, more user-friendly approaches that I think should be free, um, improvements to geometric morphometrics, more graphic user interfaces, better understanding of the variance of the traits and the metrics that we use, developing new methods methods, that weight traits, combined skeletal regions, combined data types. Just think there is so much room for research and improvement here. And then that can also inform our best practice guidelines. Sure. So say you were going to develop like a new or novel method and you didn't have any limitations, you had endless resources. How would you do it? I think the first thing would be constructing sort of unbiased study samples that are large enough, more diverse, and have better representativeness. Focusing more on variation, describing it, comparing it, explaining it before moving to that prediction component. And I think a lot of these ideas are come from or stem from that book chapter by Naraki Latham and Bartling. It's a really fantastic chapter on sort of how we should be approaching this research. And then sort of testing the interaction and relationships of the variables, integrating uh, multivariate approaches that are using morphological and metric data for multiple skeletal regions for predictive purposes. And then again, making sure that the programs that we're using are easily accessible, self-validating, statistically robust to provide those predictions. What do you feel would be the best practices or guidelines for sex estimation? So I don't have an answer for this, but before we can even develop the best practices, I think we need to do a ground up sort of backwards approach and conduct the necessary research to actually make meaningful suggestions in these best practices. Historically, with the SWIGANTH and OSAC committees, we have a group of volunteer forensic anthropologists, some of which are not even board certified, kind of coming together to create standards or best practice recommendations in the case of SWIGANTH. And then those draft documents become available for public comment and are finalized after revisions. And instead, I think we need to sort of start at the ground level. What are acceptable levels of validity and reliability? Collect data on current practices for complete or incomplete fragmented or altered remains. Hypothesis testing of these confounding factors like population variation, secular change, age, et cetera. And then use that foundational research and data to develop criteria or steps or flowcharts for ideal scenarios where maybe you have a complete skeleton and then cases that are less than ideal. Then we should be defining our reporting criteria, move away from statements like probable male or male question mark to instead include statistical probabilities and error rates, and then use those best guidelines to develop lab or individual standard operating procedures. And again, all of these need to be flexible enough to operate within the various contexts with which we work. And then they need to be periodically reevaluated and revised based on more 
information or more research that comes out. So I think we need to really start at the ground level, figure out what we're doing, why we're doing it, why we're seeing what we're seeing before we say, here's what we should be doing. I agree. And one thing I'd I'd throw in is I, I really think that we should be also reporting kind of on the likelihood. And you touched on that a little bit, but given that it's a two sample problem and that DNA evidence comes with this same type of understandable statistic. It's something that we could easily incorporate into it. So instead of a probable male, you could just say something like, it is 538 times more likely to be male than female. So without having to put any sort of caveat, the strength of the evidence speaks for itself. And that's something that you can incorporate on any of them. And that's one thing I always do, like with the four disc results, I always calculate the odds ratio and put that in my report, because I think that's something that's easy for our audience to understand. So if I say it's two times more likely based on this analysis to be a black male than a white male, you know, that is certainly different than if I say it's 12 times more likely Right. And that's something that's easily translatable and understandable to sort of our audience. That's that's so much more understandable than like just saying it's a male or a a white male or a black male with a posterior probability of zero point four. And a typicality and the sample size and all of that. Right. So all of these theoretical numbers that mean nothing can be transformed into a very relatable thing that allows a lay person to. Uh, consider the strength of that evidence. So the honest responsibility is off of you and it's not just piggybacked on these obscure probability numbers that most people don't understand. And I think it's our job as anthropologists also to include some of the foundational information in our report. Like this is what a typicality means in layman's terms. These are how many groups we compared our unknown individual to from the reference sample. And that if the reference sample is not inclusive of all groups or putting in a caveat like certain methods only include three groups. So for example, if it comes out or potentially could be a Hispanic individual, this method will not tell us that because it does not include a Hispanic reference sample. Or even, you know, like in the trauma section, what does anti-mortem mean? What does perimortem mean from a forensic anthropological perspective? So writing in a way that the audience of that report can make meaning of what we are presenting and that it's not so filled with scientific jargon that they can't understand it. Yeah. And I feel like the jargon is just used as a defense mechanism about our insecurities about our place as scientists. Well, yeah, and I think, as you know, there's a lot of this debate surrounding ancestry estimation and population affinity, and should we be reporting it? Should we not be reporting it? I think a lot of that, at least from my perspective, is, you know, we need to be involved with our stakeholders. We need to explain to them what this means. We need to explain the limitations of it and the language in our reports matter. You know, it's not okay to just put, you know, the Forda said X, Y, and Z, here's the probability, here's the typicality. Well, what does that mean? What do we compare it to? You know, what does that mean within like a broader context? Yeah, but I, I, I agree. Uh, we need to be able to under, to explain these things to people that are going to be using them to make decisions that really impact the, the case. So if you can't explain it, then you might be sending somebody down a, a, a wrong rabbit hole just because you used language that was too sure or too obscure to really convey uh, the level of certainty that you can given a case. 
And it's okay, again, to say that, you know, we couldn't estimate sex or ancestry in this case because of X, Y, and Z, pursue other methods like DNA or et cetera, right? Yeah. You don't want to hinder the investigation by stating it more precisely than you actually can. Is there anything about this paper that you think is important that might get missed? Probably just that there's more work to be done with sex estimation. It doesn't get as much attention in terms of research, publications, conference presentations, as maybe some of the other parameters because it lacks some of those inherent difficulties. But there's still a ton of work to be done with sex estimation. And you had, you had previously talked about using kind of mixed methods and weighting different features, but this is something you've already pursued and is currently available in the MorphoPass package. So where can that be found and uh, what is, what's all in it? So one thing that I'm hoping to expand with MorphoPass that I love about your uh, human ID program is integrating morphological and metric methods. So right now it doesn't do that. But the MorphoPass program looks at the skull and pubis traits and puts them within a statistical framework where you can use random forest modeling or the original publications from Walker or Clouds et al. And then you can select the appropriate population and temporal period and region if you know it or can just use unknown for a statistical classification of sex. And then it also will provide the model accuracy and a lot of the statistics that are not necessarily included with a lot of methods, like the positive predictive value. The website for it is just www.morphopass.com, and it's M-O-R-P-H-O, morpho, and then P-A-S-S-E, pelvis and skull sex estimation. Thank you so much to Dr. Alex Clales for taking the time to chat, and thank you for listening. In the podcast description, we have included a link to the MorphoPass program, and if you'd like to follow what Dr. Klaus is up to, we have links to the Washburn University Forensic Anthropology Recovery Unit, as well as her personal website. Thanks for listening, and be good.